Today is uh, Easter Sunday, and as such, <coughs> uh, we are going to be concentrating on the good news, of course, of the gospel, which we do that every, every Sunday here at Foundation Church. Um, but also today marks the, the, the start of a new series that we're going we're gonna to look at. You'll hear more about this really next, next week. Uh, but the series is based on the book of Philippians, from which uh, James just read the uh, really key passage. Uh, the, the series is called The Pursuit of Joy, and you'll, you'll uns- hopefully understand why that is as we, as we go through week to week. Um, but the, the, the passage that James just read t- to us really forms the, the beating heart of the entire book of, of Philippians, the beating heart behind the letter. Uh, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you, you may know that uh, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, culminate in the death and, and the resurrection of Jesus. They give us the eyewitness accounts or the accounts of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, what he said, what he did, and what happened to him. Uh, the epistles, you know, the letters um, in, the, in the New Testament unpack the implications, the relevance of, of that gospel message. But here, this uh, section that we've just had in this, in this book of Philippians contains an early Christian hymn. Uh, maybe not a hymn in our own modern understandings of, you know, stand up everybody and let's sing hymn number, you know, one uh, from the book of Philippians. That's not quite it, but a, a, a sort of a, a rhythmic uh, poem or, you know, expressing a, a deep gospel truth, um, you know, possibly set to music, but um, stating these key things about Jesus. And, and Paul here either wrote it himself or more likely quoted it. Um, and so that's that's really what we've just heard read to us, this gospel hymn, very early hymn from the, the early church. Now, the interesting thing about that and what we're going to be spending our time on is that the hymn itself doesn't tell us the external eyewitness accounts. We've got that in the gospels. Neither does it really unpack the implication of the gospel. But like no other piece of scripture, this early Christian hymn expresses the gospel from Jesus' perspective from his own subjective, what it meant for him. And so we're going to consider this passage together, uh, this heartbeat of of the book of Philippians. We're going to consider that together. It's going to give us two unique perspectives on the Easter story. Um, And so obviously it's very relevant. That's why we're starting, by the way, in chapter 2. Next week we're going to go way back to the beginning, start... At verse 1, chapter 1. But for today, uh, it just seemed appropriate to jump in to Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> so, two unique perspectives. We're going to see, number one perspective, the humility of Christ. And the second perspective we're going to see is the exaltation of Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by those two terms as we, as we go on. The humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And by the way, this isn't just a sort of interesting discussion of this sort of old uh, Christian hymn. Uh, and we learn something more about Jesus, and that's, that's wonderful. Uh, but what we're about to see, the humility of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, has a direct implication on you and me. Um, we're not just sort of uh, examining this from afar. What we see going on in the mind of Christ, in, in what it meant for him in the gospel, that first Easter, has a direct implication on those of us who believe the gospel, has an implication on how we live our lives, has an implication on what we will become and what we should look like as a result of believing in the gospel. 
So it's very important. It's not just a cold study of Jesus, but actually it, it clearly has uh, implications for those of us gathered here uh, today. Um, and, you know, in a, sort of the wider sense, uh, this book of Philippians, the pursuit of joy. If we want to understand, and we'll come back to this time and time again, if we want to understand what is true joy and what is it rooted in, then we start right here. We start by looking at the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. If we want to understand and experience true, deep, rooted joy, we need to understand this. So there's a lot of good reasons why uh, we need to have a sound grasp of what is being taught us in this passage. So let's look, number one, at the humility of Christ. Humility means putting other people before yourself. In fact, if you have the Bible open in front of you, you may not, that's okay, but a few verses before the ones that James read to us, um, Paul, who wrote the letter, is saying to the church to be humble. And he says, count others as more significant than yourselves. Don't look at your own interests, look to the interests of others. That's what humility is all about. And we'll look at that in a few weeks' time when we come to study this passage again. But this is what Jesus has done. He looks to the needs of other people over and above his own needs. He, he, he considers other people more significant than himself, which is a wonderful thing to do. But I tell you what, when we're done in a few more minutes' time, you'll realise how much more wonderful it is than you might first think. Look down at verse 6, first of all, which really begins the hymn proper. <coughs> it says that uh, Jesus Christ, this is we're referring to Jesus Christ, was in the form of God. And it says later on, he had equality with God. You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, before he's anything else, he is God himself. He is as much God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The Son of God is God. He is equal with God. There's no hierarchy, if you like, within the Trinity. You see, quite often we, are, we think of the, the, the gospel story, the event of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and we, we started at Christmas, the other big Christian celebration. And we think the gospel story starts then, but actually this hymn shows that it starts way before. The good news of Jesus and who he is and what he's done starts way before he even came to earth as a baby. At his incarnation, that's the fancy word for what happened there. See, the gospel story, the good news, started way before time even existed. Because before the world came into being, before time even existed, the Son of God was there. And he was God. And he was fully God. Full of divine glory, full of holiness. Had the adoration of the, the heavenly choirs of angels singing to him, honouring him as the Son of God. And he was that eternally before time even came into being. But look, it says, he did not count equality with God, in verse 6, a thing to be grasped. He's God, he's fully God, he's equal with God. And yet he didn't consider that to be something to grasp, to hold on to, to seize eagerly. It says, instead, he made himself, in verse 7, nothing taking on the form of a servant. You see, the Son of God, the eternal, glorious, wonderful, holy Son of God, fully God, was well within his rights 
to retain his, his, his status, his divinity, to remain in heaven, to remain uh, in the delight of his father's eyes in the heavenly realms and to do nothing to come down to earth and save his people. He was well within his rights to do that. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, or the Son of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing. He, he, he took on the form of a servant. Some Bible translations say, this bit, you know, he made himself nothing. They say he emptied himself. We have to be careful here. Uh, we're not saying that when the Son of God came to earth and was born as a human being, as a, as a baby, <coughs> we're not saying that he somehow sort of put his godness or his divinity to one side and became a human being as if he was either one or the other. We're not saying that he was less than God when he came and was born uh, to the Virgin Mary and laid in a manger. At that moment and for the rest of his life, he was still fully God. And yet he took upon himself at that moment the nature of a servant. He, it says uh, late, later on in verse 7, he was born in the likeness of men. He took that upon himself. He added that to his being. Fully God and yet fully human. Just like you and me in every way except he didn't sin. He got tired. He got hungry. He woke up. He went to sleep. He went to work. Fully human. He felt pain, he felt joy, he felt sorrow. Fully human in every way. But also at the same time, fully God. But the thing is, at some point in eternity past, the son realised that being God was not about getting, but the very being of God was about giving. And so it says in verse 8, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He lived a human life, an obedient human life, the only one of its kind. He was fully obedient to the Father. He was fulfilling the law, not out of a grinding sense that I've just got to get through this, but he was fulfilling the law of God out of a love for his Father, out of a desire to adore him. Every beat of his heart, every breath of his lungs, every thought of his mind was given to the love of God in the obedience of the law. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, but the hymn continues by becoming obedient to the point of death. See, when his obedience meant that he had to lay down his life in order to obey his father, he chose at that moment obedience over cashing in his equality with God. Remember just before Jesus went to the cross, we see him there in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating like drops of blood. And Jesus is praying, he's on his own, his disciples have fallen asleep. He's just about to be betrayed into the hands of uh, the, the, the Jewish sort of uh, temple army, if you like. And he's praying before God and he's saying, if it, if it is possible, take this cup from me, take this cup of suffering away from me. But, he says, not my will, but yours be done. See, he chose obedience over his own life. He was obedient to the point of death, it says in verse 8, even death on a cross. See, the death of Jesus 
was not just any old death. It's not like he just fell off a boat and was drowned or got hit by a, a rock or something like that. There's something specific, something terrible about the death on a cross. That was what his obedience eventually looked like, was dying on a cross. It was a terrible way to go. But the thing that made dying on a cross particularly harrowing was that to a Jew, dying on a cross is a cursed death. The person who dies on a cross is cursed by God. It is abhorrent to all people. Sharon was reading this earlier on. Like uh, <clears throat> from, from Isaiah 53, he was stricken and afflicted, said the prophecy. Jesus Christ, when he was nailed to the cross, was treated as cursed, a shameful death. People who were crucified were often stripped naked. They were nailed up, not just put behind a wall somewhere, but they were pinned up along the roadside as a message to all of those who came and left the city. And the message was this, don't mess with the state. Don't mess with Rome, because if you do, this is what will happen to you. And so they die these long, shameful, cursed deaths. Can you see what Jesus did? He came down from his heavenly splendor and, and lived a human life. He came down under the law and lived total, full-blooded obedience to the law. He came down to a cursed death, even death on a cross. All of this was a choice. Every step of the way, Jesus was not a, a passenger he decided at every moment to obey his Father for you so that he may save his people. He knew that being the Son of God meant giving rather than getting. He knew that that was the only way to save his people, the only way. Look at his humility. See what he has done for you. See him coming down for you. See the actions of his life and his death, his obedience, expressing the heart and the mind and, and the love of God for his people. He didn't grasp at his own birthright. Instead, he gave himself for his people. This is the good news, isn't it, for, for sinners like me and like you. Rather than grasping, the Son of God gave himself for us so that we can be brought back to God, so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that the curse that was on us can be lifted, so that life that we didn't have could be poured out upon us because of the humility of the Son coming down for us. This is good news. This is good news because we might think, you might think, that you are too deep in your sin and your guilt. You are too far away from God. But when we look at this passage and we see the humility of Christ and what he has done and how far down he has come, no matter how far down you think you have gone, Christ has gone deeper. He drank the cup of God's judgment to the bottom so that you don't have to. He came to serve and not be served by giving his life as a ransom. We heard that a few moments ago. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, 
said that the lower Christ stoops to save you, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. The lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. We have a response to make, don't we, to the humility of Christ. But before we add our voices to the praises of of Christ for his humility, we need to wait our turn. Because the hymn doesn't stop at verse 8, it continues. Humility, you see, is followed by exaltation. The hymn transitions in verse 9. And so we move to the second unique perspective on the, the Easter story, the humility, what it cost Jesus, what it meant for him. But now look at the exaltation. We know it's a turning point in the, in the passage because verse 9 continues the hymn and it says, therefore, it starts with a therefore. It connects in our minds and in the theme what happened before with what is about to be said. Therefore, Meaning, on the basis of his humility, on the basis of the humility of the Son, his total obedience, culminating in his death, even his death on the cross, therefore, in response to that, God has highly exalted him. I love uh, sometimes looking up the little Greek words behind the English translation. And, 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 And the Greek verb behind... Highly exalted. It's, 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 it's one, one verb. But it's a compound verb. It's, a verb. it's two verbs stuck together. And, and, and the Greek word is hyper ipsuo. Ipsuo means exalted, and hyper just means hyper. He's not just exalted, he is hyper exalted. Highly, highly, highly. There is no higher exaltation than you can get than that which Christ was given. He has highly exalted his son. He has lifted him up. He has raised him to the highest place in the kingdom. And he has, it says, bestowed on him in verse 9 the name that is above every name. You see, at that moment when God the Father highly exalted and lifted up the son... He gave him a new title, a fresh title, a new name that evokes, as we'll see in a few moments, total submission, the name to which all knees will bow. What name is above every name? What name is the highest name? As great as the name Jesus is, which means God saves, by the way, That's not the name that's being referred to here. There is no greater name. There is no greater title than the title of God himself. His personal name. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. The title is Lord. We see that in verse 11. Jesus Christ is Lord meaning God. There is no higher title than to be called God. Just to be clear, don't want you thinking that I'm sort of contradicting myself based on what I said earlier on. 
God the Son, Jesus, was always God. We saw that earlier. He was always the eternal Son. He is eternally and fully God. And when he came to earth and was born by a virgin and, and, and born as a baby in a manger, or put in a manger, he was not less than God at that moment. He was always fully God. But these verses here tell us that, that, that he was given a new name. He was given the name of, of God, the divine name conferred upon him. So what changed? If he was already God to start with, then how has God done something extra? How is he more God now? A little uh, illustration might help. In 2011, uh, Prince William of Wales married Catherine Middleton. Um, if you know your royal families, uh, you'll know that Prince William is the son of Prince Charles. And as such, William is second in line from the throne. If you're the queen, then you have Prince Charles, and then you've got William, second in line for the throne. That's who he is. That's who he was born to be. And there's no one that can take that away from him. He's always going to be the son of Charles, second in line for the throne. But in 2011, when he married Catherine, he had additional titles bestowed upon him by the queen. Additional honours. Not only was he Prince William of Wales, but he was also given the title Duke of Cambridge, Earl of Strathern, Baron of Carrickfergus. You see, he's the same person. He's still the son of Charles. He's still second in line for the throne. But in this momentous occasion of his marriage, he was given additional titles to show publicly to, to how much he was valued by the queen. He was given great honour in, in the sight of all people. A great declaration came from the monarch to William. You are highly honoured in my eyes. And so in the same way, this humble servant, Jesus, who was like us in every way, was given this public bestowal before all of heaven and all of earth. And at that moment, he was given the name above all names. You see, Prince William, that's a pretty cool title. One day he will be the king, probably. But there is a higher title still, a higher honour that far surpasses anything that earthly kings will ever have. And Jesus got that title given to him, conferred upon him, for all eyes to see that Jesus is God. He is Lord. And at that name, not the name of William or any other earthly power, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not every knee will necessarily willingly bow, of course. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is not how it is at present, of course. We don't need to look too far away to realise that at the moment, our present experience is that not every knee will bow before the name of Jesus. <coughs> but one day, and that day will come, one day they will. One day all of us will. And for many, it will be the best day ever. 
For many, it will be a terrible experience. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't forget it was the Father's plan from all eternity (coughs) to save his people, to reveal his heart of generosity towards his people, to reveal the extent that the Father will go to win his sons and daughters back to himself. All that Jesus did was to the glory of his Father. So we've seen the humility of Christ. We've seen the exaltation of Christ. And that's what Easter is all about. We've seen what it meant for Christ coming down from heaven, down under the law, down to obedience, down to death, even death on a cross. And we've seen him being exalted, given the highest honour, the name of God. And at Easter, we see this stunning truth. You see, Jesus didn't stop being humble and start being exalted. Yes, it happened in a stepwise way. But the amazing thing is that Jesus is both today. He is still the humble servant and he is the exalted Lord. He is still the innocent lamb that was slain and He is the roaring lion. He is the servant who gave his life as a ransom. And he is the high king who is Lord and God of all. He became humble to reveal the heart of God to us. To save us by by giving rather than grasping. He came down to save you. He, He left heaven so that you and me can be united to God. What can we do? as people except fall on our knees before him? What can we do but add our voices of praise and worship and adoration to the countless myriad and myriad thousand of thousands of angels who are currently praising Jesus, the lamb that was slain? What can we do except give our lives in their fullness in service to him who gave his life to serve us? What part of our lives can we keep from him? None, of course. We give our all. You see, the more that we see what Christ did that first Easter, the more we internalize that and receive it by faith and dwell on it, the more we'll be transformed into that same image, into humble people who consider others more important than ourselves. And yet we are transformed into people who live our lives to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask just now that you would apply these truths to our hearts. We ask that you would bow our hearts before Christ. We ask that you would give us the strength to give ourselves to him fully. We ask, Holy Spirit, if there are parts of our lives that we are holding back for ourselves, that you would give us the the strength and the power and the motivation to give you all of our lives. Because we know Christ gave infinitely more for us. Let us give our lives back to him in humble 
adoration and thanksgiving. In the name of the risen Son, we pray. Amen.